Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, today is the first day of September. It is also a Friday before the long Labor Day holiday weekend, the official end of summer. Although I guess my summer will never end because uh, once the weather starts to turn cold, I am headed back down south to Puerto Rico to continue my summer year-round. Of course, also, since it is the first day of a new month and it is a Friday, we got the non-farm payrolls report, which had been, uh, I guess, highly anticipated by a lot of traders. There were a lot of people who were looking for the numbers to be better uh, than the consensus forecast, which I think was about 180,000 jobs. You know, we got 209,000 was the original report for July. So looking for a little bit less of a bump in in August. And the number came in at 156,000, so well below what the consensus was. In fact, to make it worse, they revised down the prior two months by, I think, about 20,000 jobs each. So August, or July, rather, went down to 189,000 new jobs. The unemployment rate notched up from its 16-year low of 14.3. We're now at 14.4. You know, remember, uh, Donald Trump, as a candidate, called 5% unemployment the greatest hoax in modern political history. Well, if it was the greatest hoax when they were claiming it was 5%, I mean, it's got to be an even greater hoax now that it's 4.4%. But, uh, you know, I just put up that video on my YouTube channel, uh, Donald Trump's huge reversal. And it's a good if you, you know, I juxtaposed a lot of these clips of the candidate Trump and now the president Trump uh, talking about how terrible the employment situation was and how the numbers were so phony And now he's embraced those same numbers and everything is great. And, of course, the same thing with the stock market. He loves the stock market now. It was a big, fat, ugly bubble. The stock market, by the way, continued to strengthen throughout the week, including in the aftermath of this weaker-than-expected non-farm payroll number. Let me continue looking at the number. Labor force participation held steady at 62.9, still very, very low. Average hourly earnings, which... Happened to be up 0.3 last month, which was about the biggest gain we've had in a while. They were looking for a bump of 0.2 in August and said just 0.1, which is pretty much what we've been getting most months. Just 0.1. Very, very meager uh, increases in average hourly earnings. And a lot of that just might have to do with the higher minimum wages that, that we have. And so you're talking about minimal amounts of money here. The uh, average... Work week actually ticked down from 
from 34.5 hours to 34.4 hours. So Americans working slightly fewer hours and barely getting more money uh, for the hours that they do work. Overall, this was a relatively weak report. Again, the only bright spot was that there was a decline in government workers, although actually there were two bright spots, the decline in government workers and a better than expected increase in manufacturing. We did see an increase of 36,000 manufacturing jobs. That's a lot more than the 9,000 they were expecting. And last month they moved to 16,000 up to 26,000. So we do have a two month jump in manufacturing jobs. The question is, is this the beginning of a new trend or, you know, just kind of a one-off uh, fluke, and we're going to go back to, you know, losing manufacturing jobs. My inclination is that it's more likely the latter. I mean, eventually we're going to have to start gaining manufacturing jobs, and I think eventually we will, but I don't think this is when it's going to start. So I think the, the trend of uh, losing those jobs is going to continue. I'm not really sure what was behind the bump that we had over the summer, uh, but I doubt it is sustainable. Same thing with the, the government. I mean, I, I wish the government was going to be uh, continuing to lay off workers because we need to uh, reduce the burden on the taxpayer of having to pay for these government workers. And we need to liberate their labor, right? They need to be free to do something productive rather than uh, just making everybody else less productive by working in government. But, you know, the number came out. It was initially seen as a weak report. The dollar tanked immediately when the number came out and gold spiked. I mean, not that much, but it was down. It was down three or four bucks before the number. And it was, then it was up about five or six bucks. But then shortly after the number came out, a new story came out that the ECB now was really undecided as to the timing of the wind down of their QE program. And they're not really going to make a decision until December. And so all of a sudden the Euro uh, you know, was sold. And so that reversed everything. The dollar rallied and, uh, and gold sold off. I mean, I don't know if they timed this release, if they're trying to influence the foreign exchange market, because this certainly uh, did the trick. Although I don't think it's going to have a long-term effect on the FX markets. I think the dollar is going down. I mean, maybe this slowed the decline for a day or, you know, who knows, maybe another day. But overall, I don't think it's going to do much. And you know, even though gold might have had a bigger rally today, had uh, the dollar closed down instead of up, and it wasn't a big rally. I mean, basically, it was a small rally. Uh, but gold did manage to finish up about four and a half bucks. It looks like it ended the week just above thirteen twenty-five, which to me still looks pretty strong. You know, we broke out above thirteen hundred. We didn't have a huge surge. But you know what? We held 1300 We didn't go back below it. We've held here all week. To me, 1300 is now the support, right? What used to be resistance is now support. Where is the next resistance? I would guess up around 1375 ish which I think was about the high last summer. I think maybe June of last year. We got up there briefly, maybe for a day. And then there was a lot of selling. And I think if you look at some charts and some downtrends, if we close above 1400 then we break the entire downtrend that started in 2011. And if you look at this chart closely, to me, it looks incredibly, incredibly bullish that once we get above that 1400 look out, you know, there's really no stopping the market. I mean, I think we can make a beeline for 1900 very quickly. 
which was the high. I mean, we could do that. We could do that next year. I mean, there's so much momentum. And I think just getting through 1,300, there should be a bunch of buying that might push us up to 1,400 in the short run. Silver was also up today. And the mining stocks, not a big day, but they were up. They had big weeks. I think, you know, my gold fund, which had been my uh, weakest fund, uh, I think before this month of the year, now I think it's number one or maybe just slightly number two behind my emerging market fund. They're both up, I think, better than 20% on the year. But I do believe that the gold fund is going to end up uh, being the best performer again in 2017, just the way it was in 2016. But remember, of course, in 2016, we ended the year on a weak note because of all the Trump-related optimism. I think we're going to end 2017 on a strong note as the Trump optimism is replaced by pessimism or realism. And a lot of that you know, trade is un unraveled uh, in, in the markets. We got a lot of other economic news that came out today. We got the manufacturing PMI that was a little weaker than expected and the ISM that was a little stronger. I think a more important number was the construction spending number, which unexpectedly dropped. They were looking for a rise of 0.6 from last month's drop of 1.3. Instead, they revised last month's drop slightly bigger, so a drop of 1.4, but we ended up dropping 1.6. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the weakest level of the year. I think this is the weakest in uh, nine months or something for a construction spending. So to me, it looks like we're really in a downturn here. And this makes sense with all these housing numbers that we're getting that are so weak. And, you know, people keep talking about the fact that the reason that homes are not selling is because there's not enough supply. Well, if that were the case, why isn't construction spending going up? If if builders see an inadequate supply, if it's really the reason that houses aren't being bought is because there's not enough of them, wouldn't you expect the builders to want to build more homes to take advantage of all this pent-up demand? The reality is houses aren't selling because there aren't buyers. And I think one of the main reasons that you don't have more houses on the market is because they're not officially for sale. You know, a lot of times you don't want to list your house because you know that you can't sell it. And, you know, once you put a house on the market, if it stays there for a long time, you know, it looks like there's a problem with it and then people lose interest in it. And so if you want to sell your house, but you don't think anyone's going to buy it, don't put it on the market. Just wait. Wait until you start seeing more sales and then you can list your house because now it won't, you know, be up there. You want to you make it a fresh listing. So I think there's a pretty big shadow inventory out there uh, that really isn't being picked up in these figures. And so people are jumping to these erroneous conclusions that, you know, the reason that people aren't buying houses is because they don't have enough to choose from. Well, why not just buy the ones that are there? I mean, you know, if you don't have enough to choose from, well, there is some. There are houses on the market. Again, I think it's more of an affordability. It's everybody wants to, you know, make lemonade out of lemons, right? No matter what the statistics are, all the, the retailers are collapsing. Instead of thinking there's a problem with the consumer, oh, no, no, it's all because of Amazon. You know, the same thing I got was looking at a report again today about box office. This is going to be the worst box office uh, of the century, which, of course, what, there's only 17, 18 years so far this century. But still, it's the worst box office, worse than we had uh, during the Great Recession. And, you know, the question is, why is that happening? I know a lot of people say, well, the movies are no good. Or people don't have to watch movies now because they can watch uh, Netflix or, you know, they can watch DVDs. 
I mean, that's been true for a while. I mean, we've had, you know, the, when the VCR came out, you could have said, well, why go to the movies now? I got a VCR. I could just go rent the movie at Blockbuster. I mean, there's a lot of things that have been happening that could have taken away demand uh, from movies for a long time. I mean, yes, now, you know, you have different things. You do have Netflix and things like that. But I still think that there is an experience of going to the movie theater. I do think that parents taking the kids to the movies, a guy taking a girl out on a date, I mean, it's still a great thing to do on a date, right? It's not that expensive compared to other things that you could do on a date. And, you know, instead of just going to dinner, a dinner and a movie, and it's something that young kids do. I mean, I remember when I was younger, I mean, in high school, college, we went to movies all the time because you want to get out of the house. It's not about, yeah, I can just stay home. I can see older people um, doing that, but, you know, who have kids, and then it's easier. Just then, what are you going to do with your kids? But part of it is you can't even afford a sitter. People would love to go to the movies, but they can't afford to get a sitter. So they have to stay home. I mean, a lot of this is a sign of a falling standard of living. It's not just that, you know, we have better options to not going out. It's the experience of going out and going to the theater uh, and people just can't afford that experience, so they're settling for just staying home and and you know and watching and watching television. So this these are all the signs: the falling box office, the falling retail sales, uh, of of an economy that is in decline, of a consumer that is loaded up with debt, that has a low-paying job, right? So they just don't have the discretionary income. And of course, you know now we get another hurricane. We got this hurricane uh, that hit Houston. Very few people had insurance, something like only one out of seven of these homes has flood insurance. Why don't people buy flood insurance? A, well, they don't have the money, but I think B, a lot of them don't buy it because they just assume that, well, if there's a flood, right, then the, there's going to be some kind of government bailout because we have a precedent. I mean, I guess if, if your house floods all by itself, well, then you got a problem. But as long as it floods as part of a major disaster where you got lots of other people who are who have the same problem as you now you know now you don't have to worry about it because no politician can resist you know coming around with taxpayer money of course the problem is that taxpayers don't have any money they're they're estimating the cost of uh, this hurricane now at 180 billion dollars which would make this the most expensive natural disaster ever but probably one that is has the least amount of insurance so it's not the insurance companies that are on the hook. Theoretically, it's the individuals or now probably the taxpayers who are going to have to foot the bill. But again, it's not even the taxpayers. They don't have the money. We're going to have to borrow it. We're going to have to go to China. We're going to have to go to Japan. Or we're going to have to ask the Federal Reserve to crank up the printing presses to print up enough money to buy up enough bonds so that the government can go and, and spend money uh, you know, rebuilding Houston. And again, I mentioned before, you're always going to have these you know, Keynesians saying, well, this is good for the GDP. This is great because look at all those cars we destroyed. Hey, this is going to solve the problem of, you know, we had an inventory glut. Hey, good news. Now we have all these cars that are ruined, so we get to replace them. Or look at all these buildings that we have to rebuild, right? Even if this does add to the GDP, which it, it, in the short run it won't because it's, it disrupts business in a, in a big way. And it also leads to higher prices because now you have to, you know, buy a bunch of raw material, Right. So prices go up. That's not good. But even if there is more economic activity, it is not a positive for the nation because we're just repairing what we used to have. And now we have to get it back. And so what about, you know, we're using resources that could have been used to give us new things. Instead, we're replacing the stuff that we used to have, but that the hurricane lost. But, you know, if you think hurricanes are good for the economy, we got another one coming. Right. There's Irma 
that's now, you know, out, not quite in the Caribbean yet, but it's headed there. And we're not sure. It might hit the East Coast of the United States, maybe in the Carolinas. I mean, we'll see. It's a, I think it's a maybe a Category 3 already, but who knows? It could be a 4 or 5 by the time it makes landfall, if it makes landfall uh, on the East Coast. And who knows, you know, if it's going to turn up the coast and keep going. But potentially that thing could do a lot of damage. And again, how much is that going to cost? Right? And, you know, a lot of the, the flood insurance, they have flood insurance that's subsidized by the government. And, and, and when that happens, people tend to build homes in flood zones where if the government didn't subsidize the insurance, the insurance would be prohibitively expensive. And so people wouldn't build there unless they were rich enough to afford to replace their home if it was flooded. So you have the government you know, creating this moral hazard where every time there are floods, there's a lot more damage as a result of the flood because of the things the government has done to encourage people to build in flood zones. If the government wasn't there with the subsidies, then fewer people would build there, and then there wouldn't be as much damage. And, of course, the people who were building there would be people who would know that, hey, I better have some money, I better have a lot of savings, because if there's damage, I've got to pay for it. Although this constant government bailout, every time there's a disaster, then you know the government has to bail them out. Now, I long for the days of Grover Cleveland, who is one of the greatest, I think, U.S. presidents and very underappreciated. Now, he was the only U.S. president to serve two non-consecutive terms in office, but one of the last presidents to really understand the Constitution and the government's proper role in society. You know, there was a natural disaster in Texas in 1887. There was a drought, and Congress had appropriated $10,000, $10,000, which even if you adjust for inflation— I guess it's probably not that much money compared to what they're going to spend uh, on this hurricane. But this was a drought. And so there was a $10,000 appropriation. And they were going to distribute some seeds to farmers that were suffering from the drought. And Grover Cleveland vetoed the bill. Can you imagine a president today getting a bill to aid the victims of a disaster and vetoing it? Vetoing it? And this is what he said. I'm going to read a quote from the great president, Grover Cleveland. I can find no warrant for such an appropriation in the Constitution. And I do not believe that the power and the duty of the general government ought to be extended to the relief of individual suffering, which is in no manner properly related to the public service or benefit. A prevalent tendency to disregard the limited mission of this power and duty should, I think, be steadily resisted to the end that the lesson should not be constantly enforced that though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. The government should not support the people. Then Cleveland went on to point out the friendliness and charity of our countrymen can always be relied on to relieve their fellow citizens in misfortune. The individual aid has to some extent already been extended to the sufferers mentioned in this bill. Right? Further, he suggested that if members of Congress really want to send seed to the suffering Texans, that the congressman might personally carry out this charitable transfer by using the speed routinely provided to all members for distribution to their constituents. Right? So basically, Grover Cleveland said, hey, if you congressmen really care about the suffering in Texas, feel free to contribute some of your own personal funds, right? And that's what should happen. In fact, you know, there's so many people out there, celebrities, everybody is out there trying to raise money. 
And, you know, there'd be a lot more people raising money if they knew the government wasn't going to do it. You know, one of the reasons, you know, not to give is that, well, the government's going to appropriate all this money. So why do we have to do anything? Because the government's going to do it for us. Right. And of course, taxes are very high because the government is spending all sorts of money that constitutionally it has no business spending. So, A, if we had a small government where we didn't have an income tax, for example, and people actually had savings in this country, then individuals would have a lot of money to give to victims of natural disasters. And they would be more willing to do it if they knew that the government wasn't going to do it. But Grover Cleveland understood that there's nothing in the Constitution that provides for this. I read on one of my earlier podcasts from uh, the Constitution where they enumerate the powers, and there's nothing in there that says that the federal government can you know, send money to people who have suffered a natural disaster. Now, I know a lot of people want to say, well, this is about the general welfare. No, it's not. This is not about the general welfare. This is about the specific welfare of those individuals who are uh, suffering, who have lost uh, homes or property as a result of this flood. The, the entire country isn't flooded. It's just one part of the country. So it is the specific welfare of the individuals that are affected. And that is not the proper function of government. Now, the state government, sure, there's nothing that says that the state of Texas, they can spend money on this. The state government sure can do it. But the federal government has no business getting involved because it has no constitutional authority to take money from citizens of one state and give it to citizens of another. Now, if those citizens want to voluntarily contribute their money, that's fine. I'm all for that. But the government has no lawful uh, authority to, to take it. But that is what they're doing. They ignore the Constitution and they love it. You know, believe me. I mean, Trump was, you know, down in the polls. This is his chance to really build his popularity. Every president loves a natural disaster because they fly in there. They get all kinds of good press. They can be seen. Oh, I'm here to help out. In fact, all the politicians come as if they're actually doing anything themselves. All they're doing is spending other people's money and they're claiming uh, the, the glory for themselves as if it's their money that's being spent. All they're doing is grandstanding. They are taking advantage of the situation to further their own political careers. And this is one of the main reasons. And of course, nobody can ever uh, vote against this stuff. How, how can you be against aid to somebody who's suffering? Well, here, Grover Cleveland was against it. He had the integrity to stand up for the Constitution and do something that was not popular. You know, nobody has that kind of integrity today that's in public office. Now, before I forget, I want to mention a couple of my upcoming appearances. I am going to be at the Dallas Money Show in early October, October 4th through the 6th. I haven't done Dallas. I just finished the San Francisco Money Show. I'm going to be at the Dallas Money Show on October 4th through 6th. Now, I don't think I've ever even been to the Dallas Money Show. I've been to Dallas, but not the Money Show. So uh, if you're in the Dallas area, uh, you know, register online. The show is free. So you don't have to, it doesn't cost any money. And come by. I, I will have uh, a booth there. I'm, do, I'm doing a couple of talks. So uh, early October. And then later October is the granddaddy of investment conferences, the New Orleans Conference, October 25th through the 28th in one of the great American cities. And of course, uh, the, uh, the city that was hit by what used to be the biggest disaster money-wise, Hurricane Katrina, you know, which is now topped by the one we just had in, um, 
in Houston, but in New Orleans is the New Orleans Conference. I will be there as I am every year. They've got a great lineup of speakers. So uh, October 25th to the 28th, come down and enjoy uh, the conference. The food is spectacular in New, in New Orleans. The jazz, lots of clubs to hang out. Remember, I did that uh, that video, that YouTube video, where I was asking all the people uh, if they were if they went to college. That was on Bourbon Street, the famous Bourbon Street. So spend an evening there. So it's a great place to be. If you haven't been there, you got to at least go once. And if you've been there, you want to come back because everybody who goes to New Orleans uh, wants to come back. I bring I bring my wife every year. She loves it down there. Uh, so you got to go and, and register. This one does cost money. But it's actually worth it. You, you get what you pay for. But you can get a discount if you mention my name when you sign up. I think it's used, I think I've got two discount codes, Peter and Schiff. So whichever one you're going to use, Peter or Schiff, make sure you use that code. And then you'll get a discount off of the price. I forget exactly what they charge, uh, but uh, it's certainly worth the price. So uh, I hope I see as many of you as I can in New Orleans and also in, uh, in Dallas if you are in the Dallas area. Of course, I don't want to uh, let this podcast end without discussing Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies. I am well aware of the new high for those of you who constantly remind me on any kind of social media page that I have. But Bitcoin almost hit 5,000 today. I think the high is, uh, I don't know, 49 something, but it didn't didn't quite hit 5,000. Although who knows, it'll probably be above 5,000 at some point. During this uh, during this holiday weekend, it's continuing to rise. In fact, all cryptocurrencies are rising. Bitcoin seems to be holding steady at about a 45% market share. Remember, this is down from a near 100% market share uh, when it first began, and and you know now it's at 45%. In fact, now I'm looking at 14 different uh, tokens, crypto uh, tokens that have market caps of above a billion, and the 15th one is pretty close now. That one is at 917 million market cap. That one's called BitConnect. So again, using the name Bit, BitConnect. And so if this can get another 10% pop here, then it'll be the 15th crypto to have a $1 billion market cap. There's only three that have more than $10 billion. That's Bitcoin Cash, you know, Ethereum, and Bitcoin itself. Ripple, almost there at $9.5 billion. And then you have a big drop down to number five, Litecoin at, at four and a half billion. But again, as far as I'm concerned, you know, none of these things really have any value. But that's not going to stop people from buying them or speculating uh, that other people will buy them at higher prices. In fact, one of the catalysts for the recent rise is the increased likelihood that they might actually allow the Bitcoin ETF. And remember the last time there was some speculation, the price ran up. Of course, it was much, much lower than it is now. And then it was rejected, and then there was a, there was a sell-off. But I don't know if they're going to reject it. Maybe they're going to approve it. And that's obviously bullish in the short run, unless it's a buy-the-rumor-sell-the-fact, which could obviously happen as well. But the problem that's going to happen if we do get a Bitcoin ETF is, you know, it works both ways. As people are buying the Bitcoin ETF, the Bitcoin ETF has to go into the market and buy the Bitcoins. And so obviously that creates additional demand for Bitcoins and the price rises. But, you know, the flip side is if all of a sudden a bunch of people want to sell that ETF, then the ETF has to go dump the Bitcoins on the market. And the market could be very illiquid. 
you know, if you want to sell your own Bitcoins and there's not a lot of, you know, bids there, you don't have to hit them. You can just put an offer in or you can wait. But if you're operating an ETF and all of a sudden a bunch of people hit a button to sell the ETF at the market, well, then you've got to sell your Bitcoins at whatever the market is, even if there is no market. You've got to hit whatever bids you can find. And so, you know, there could be an avalanche of selling that would feed on itself because as the ETF starts selling and now the price of Bitcoin starts dropping, that could cause more people to want to sell the ETF and it just spirals out of control. You know, they have ETFs for gold and like a lot of people think that, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin is digital gold, so let's have an ETF for Bitcoin. Bit gold is a very, very liquid market. I mean, so it's easy for the, the uh, operator of a gold ETF. If there are a lot of sellers uh, of the gold ETF, they can easily find buyers in the physical market for large quantities of gold. I mean, maybe the price will go down a little bit, but it's not going to implode. So it's going to be a lot more problematic. But you need to ask yourself the question, why would we have a Bitcoin ETF in the first place? I mean, there was a valid reason for a gold ETF, right? Because a lot of people didn't want to deal with physical gold. Because where are you going to put it? Where are you going to store it? What if somebody steals it? You know, and so a lot of people didn't want to deal with it. I mean, I, I mean, I deal with it. I mean, we sell physical gold, but I know a lot of people, a lot of fund managers. Let's say, you know, you don't. What are you going to do with the gold? How are you going to how how are you going to have it? Right. So. The, the, uh, the ETF made it more convenient for people to have gold. And, of course, there is a storage fee. If you own the ETF, you, you, know, you have a storage fee there because the ETF has to make money. So they charge you something. And, of course, you, you do have a counterparty, right? Normally, when you buy physical gold, right, there's no counterparty risk because you own the gold. Obviously, where there's an ETF, you don't own the gold. You own the ETF. The ETF owns the gold, or at least so they say, and you have to... Uh, assume that they do or trust their auditors but why have a bitcoin etf i mean first of all anybody can buy bitcoin just go online and open up a, an account and buy yourself some bitcoin doesn't cost anything to store it i mean you can't take delivery of your bitcoin because there's nothing to deliver so you just go ahead and buy it in cyberspace and keep it in your cyber wallet why do you need to introduce a third party why do you need to introduce an etf in fact the etf is going to have to charge you because the ETF is going to have a cost to operate. If you buy your Bitcoins in an ETF, you're going to have to pay a storage fee. Well, why pay a storage fee for something that's free to store? I mean, in the case of gold, wherever you store your gold, unless you're storing it yourself, there's a fee. And even if you store it yourself, let's assume you have a safe. Well, you got to buy the safe. That costs money. So it makes no sense to buy Bitcoin in an ETF when you could just go and buy it cheaper you know, you don't you don't need that ETF. <clears throat> also, you now have a counterparty. One of the things that everybody keeps telling me about Bitcoin and why it's so great is, well, you know, it's it's decentralized. There's no third parties. There's no storage. Well, if you buy your Bitcoin and ETF, you have created everything that the Bitcoin community says is so bad. Right. You now have your Bitcoin with a counterparty. And now you it's no longer decentralized because, you know, it's it, it's located in that in that ETF. When you buy the Bitcoin ETF, you don't own any Bitcoin. You own an ETF that owns Bitcoin. And also, if the idea is that Bitcoin is going to be money and it's going to circulate as money, well, obviously it's not circulating as money if it's inside an ETF. The only reason that it's going to be in an ETF is so people can speculate on it, right? People think the price is going to go up. So they're not buying it in an ETF because they want to use their Bitcoin as money. They're buying it in an ETF because they hope the price is going to go up and they can sell it. See, by definition, all the Bitcoins in the ETF 
are going to be sold because the people who are buying the ETFs are going to have to sell them. See, at least in theory, and I don't believe it, it's going to happen in reality, but in theory, if the people who believe in Bitcoin are right and you own some Bitcoin, you might never have to sell them. You could just use them because eventually if they become money, you can just spend your Bitcoins because prices will be in Bitcoins. But you can't spend the ETF. You have to sell the ETF. You have to cash in your Bitcoins because the ETF is going to trade in dollars. Right, so you're gonna have to now. I don't know. Maybe the the Bitcoin uh, ETF will, will allow redemptions in Bitcoin because I know the gold ETF you can take a redemption if you have a large enough order. So maybe a Bitcoin ETF will, in theory, allow you to actually redeem your Bitcoin. So then you theoretically could spend them, but in most cases that's not what's going to happen. If people actually wanted the Bitcoins, they wouldn't buy the ETF. They would just buy the Bitcoins outright. You know, why buy the ETF? And of course, now, if you're concerned about privacy, if you think, hey, I, I own Bitcoin because the government doesn't know about me and it's all private. Well, obviously, they know about you if you own the ETF. I mean, it's in your brokerage account. It's on your statements. They, you know, they get, you know, the 1099 is there, right? If you if you buy the Bitcoin ETF and it goes up and you sell it, well, obviously, you're going to have to pay taxes on that gain. And it's not even capital gains. It's going to be like a collectible, right, I think. Right, uh, so you're going to have to pay capital gains. But obviously, if somebody just buys Bitcoin, you know, in their digital wallet anonymously and sells it, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of people that aren't paying any capital gains taxes. So to me, just having this Bitcoin ETF, the sole purpose of having it is to create additional speculative demand for probably the most speculative asset that already exists on the planet. You know, a lot of people are saying, well, people are buying, you know, Bitcoin as a safe haven. No, they're not. They're, buy it, they're buying it for sheer speculation. There is nothing safe. If you are paying $5,000 for a Bitcoin, do you really think you're doing something safe? Do you really think that Bitcoin can't plunge in value? Of course it can. People who are buying it are gambling. You know, people aren't even buying gold as a safe haven right now because nobody is worried about anything. Look, I mean, somebody asked me that question the other day. I was doing this interview with RT. You know, are people buying gold as a safe haven or is that? No. Because the stock markets are going up. People aren't worried. If people were worried about things, if there was some geopolitical risk that was actually worrying investors, the stock market would be going down. It's not. The stock market's going up. I think gold is just going up because the dollar is weak. Gold is going up because people are worried about a return to inflation. I think there are, you know, it's not geopolitical risks, but the move up in Bitcoin has nothing to do uh, with with uh, with a safe haven because nobody could possibly buy Bitcoin if they're worried about risk because when you buy Bitcoin you are assuming massive risk now I get it yes maybe there's huge potential upside if it keeps rising yeah I get that but that's not a safe haven a safe haven isn't something you buy because you think it's going way up a safe haven is something that you buy because you think it's safe you think you're going to preserve what you have Right? That's the point of buying something because it's a safe haven. You're not buying it because you think it's going way up. You're buying it because you think the downside is limited. You're buying it because you think other things that you used to own could go way down and that they have more downside. Believe me, if you are selling stocks or gold or currency and buying Bitcoin, the Bitcoin that you're buying has much more downside risk than the asset that you're selling. And I do think that you know if we do see some real concern where assets are falling i expect these cryptocurrencies to act more like a risk asset than a safe asset and i know i had speculated that when gold broke out that could be the pin to prick the bitcoin bubble 
And apparently it hasn't pricked it yet, but maybe the breakout isn't dramatic enough yet because gold gold hasn't having a big move. I mean, if gold can put together a fifty, a hundred dollar rally, if all of a sudden gold could really spike, you know, that might be enough to do it. But I think these small moves are really not taking these cryptos out of the spotlight. In fact, they seem to be overshadowing. I mean, whenever I talk about the price of gold, oh, well, that's nothing compared to Bitcoin. Look how much more Bitcoin have risen, which is true, which is true. But, you know, Bitcoin can go down 90%, 95%, 99%. That ain't going to happen to gold. The only question is, when is it going to stop? And I know a lot of people are becoming more and more cocky uh, every time we hit a new high. And that, again, characterizes every single bubble that people who bet on it are more and more emboldened as the market goes their way. But again, there's an old saying, don't confuse brains with a bull market. And that's even more important when it's not just a bull market, but when it's a bubble. Oh, 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 oh,